Welcome to T-Smack, home of the T-Smack. May I take your order? Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talking Smack, where we talk superheroes, movies, animation, comics, and much, much more. I am your host, Josh Scar, and with me, as almost always, is my co-host, Alex. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I am a little worried, though. I heard a siren earlier, and they said something about an attack off the coast of Lake Michigan. I'm worried. (laughs) We're not that close to Chicago. We should be fine unless there's uh, some atomic breath involved. I hope not. I hope not. Are you okay? Is Antonio okay? (laughs) Well, Antonio lives in the mountains. I think he's okay. But Antonio, please let us know how you're doing. Oh, I'm okay. But I also live next to a giant dead saltwater lake. I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. (laughs) And I would not doubt that there is some kind of industrial spill mutated creature or brine shrimp of some sort swimming in the waters of the great salt lake but other than that i'm fine (laughs) isn't in godzilla 2014 the u.s edition uh isn't isn't that where the like female muto comes from i think so or Or is that the uh it bursts out of like a mountainside or something because they try to like oh yucca mountain in nevada that's right But we yeah. do have the Dugway Proving Ground out here, which is where uh, the virus from Outbreak was manufactured. So oh. we got scary shit out here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Antonio, thanks for joining us for this one again. And uh, let everyone know about your podcast because you you had a big announcement this past weekend. So we, we can't let you talk about the, the cult worthy, the cult worthy classic, the MILF and me, and now this new venture you've got going on. Yeah, well, I mean, you just uh, said my other three shows, and so the big announcement is I will be starting a brand new podcast in January with our good friend and mutual Justin Henson of The Movie Wire. It's called Back to the Balcony, and it is about Siskel and Ebert. We critique the critics in this new podcast. We pick movies throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s up until uh, Ebert's, I'm sorry, Siskel's passing, and we try and determine whether or not they were right or they were wrong or if they were right or wrong why (laughs) and just kind of dissect that and the funny thing about it is justin and i don't talk about anything before recording kind of like tonight like none of us said anything about this movie to each other because we want to know whether or not we sit on the same side of the fence and it's been a pretty interesting blend of of discourse where there's movies i'm like defending with all my heart and soul and he's like no Two thumbs down. It sucks. (laughs) It stinks. (laughs) And vice versa. Spoiler alert when you guys get to the 90s, Ebert is very much wrong about a goofy movie. That's all I'll say. (laughs) We might have to have you on that one. (laughs) Uh, In this scenario, are you more Statler or Waldorf? (laughs) I just need to know. (laughs) Oh, I'm definitely Statler. All right. <laughs> Part of this is since he is like the world's biggest Roger Ebert slut, I have taken upon myself to be the spokesman for Gene Siskel in this podcast. So when we are doing our discourse, 
I'm pretty much taking the stance of Siskel and really breaking down his reviews and his critiques while Justin can pretty much talk about his favorite movie critic of all time and wax poetic about him. And, and it, it makes him happy. And if Justin's happy, then I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not hard to be a slut for Roger Ebert. He did write that like exploitation classic return to Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> beyond the Valley of the oh, Dolls. Sorry. Thank you, Beyond the <laughs> Valley of the Dolls. Yes. And what a masterpiece that was. <laughs> and he also once in one of his articles, uh, I mean, his reviews, opined that the era of nudity had seemed to pass Hollywood by as they were no longer showing as many breasts in movies. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, it's too yeah. bad that he hasn't been around uh, in the last decade to see, like, the emergence of, of Wang in the films, <laughs> you know. I wonder what he would have had to say about all the dong hanging in the last 10 years. <laughs> oh, and speaking of boy. dongs... <laughs> just wanted to segue into our conversation <laughs> yeah uh super familiar with the wilsons um i'm not sure how that <laughs> it works trust me yeah but uh josh and amanda are here to talk about their podcast super familiar with the wilsons we're gonna hear from them and we'll be right back to talk about godzilla minus one with antonio we'll be right back the super familiar with the wilsons podcast you know that family whose house you hung out in when you were a kid? The house was a little loud and chaotic, but always fun, and sometimes felt more home than home. Well, that's us. We're the Wilsons, and we welcome you into our podcast with silly chat, ridiculous games, and interviews with interesting people. Like a spin doctor. The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. Welcome home. Yeah, I said if you want to call me baby. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I looked it up real quick and uh, I have to rescind my previous comment because apparently Ebert did enjoy a goofy movie to some extent. He gave it three stars and a thumbs up. So I, I rescind my disagreement because obviously he, he's still kind of wrong because it, it should be at minimum four stars. Exactly. <laughs> I agree with you. What did that bastard Siskel think of it? <laughs> I I didn't care to look it up because <laughs> I only mentioned Ebert because I swear I had looked it up a while ago just to see like what the Rotten Tomatoes score was for a goofy movie because sometimes they'll have like old reviews that they'll pull and they'll do their whatever they do. And it, I think it's sitting at like a 58 or it, it's sitting at a rotten score, like just in the high 50s. And there's an Ebert one that I swear they have written as negative. But uh, I didn't bother like going into it because I'm just like, oh, Rotten Tomatoes and your your amalgamation of scores and how they don't always make sense. Well, if it makes you feel any better, they infamously gave speed to cruise control, two thumbs up enthusiastically. So <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, that's an episode I'm looking forward to from you guys. <laughs> it's on so the list. <laughs> these are critiques of just the reviews though, right there. You guys aren't going in and watching those movies as well. Oh no, we're definitely watching the movies and we, do a little dissection of the movies, but we don't give our scores of the reviews of the movies on the show. We are only giving scores of the reviews. So if you're curious about what we really think of the movie, you can check out our letterbox pages. That's where we have like our stars and our ratings and reviews. Other than like defending certain points of the movie, the main topic of conversation is where are they right and where are they wrong in their critique of the film? 
and like has it stood the test of time? How did it compare to other critics of the day? And especially now that we have these aggregators, where does it stand against what audiences think? Which, I mean, we've all kind of known that that deck is kind of loaded on both ends. We just found out there was like this massive uh, data breach that showed that there were PR campaigns that were paying off critics to give movies favorable scores to increase the critic score lately. So even those can't be trusted, guys. You don't say no way. No No way. Payola. (laughs) Never. (laughs) You you know, it's almost like one of the companies has a monopoly and tends to fly out every critic to their movie premiere to wine and dine them and have them meet all the stars and see the and movie three weeks in advance right. and influencers and selectively chooses it so that there's a pre-release hype. But that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. But giving the someone, audiences. No, giving someone $20, though, that crosses the line. Exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of crossing a line, we're going to talk about Godzilla Minus One and... This movie crossed so many lines for me that I I did not expect a Godzilla movie to make me feel the way I felt about some things in this. And um, I think that is absolutely fantastic. We're going to talk full spoilers because everything that is non-spoiler is pretty much in the trailer. Uh, but I also don't know that other than obviously diving into the actual human element of the story, there's not a whole lot of spoilers to get into because it's a Godzilla movie. You kind of know what you're getting into. Uh, there is no other kaiju. There is no other monster happening. So, like, it, you you have a pretty decent idea of what this movie is going into on a su- on a surface level. This movie was so much deeper than I gave any kind of Godzilla movie credit for previously. Like, uh, I gave Alex some homework because um, I had him watch the Matt Draper uh, Showa era Godzilla uh, video essay, which I recommend anyone watch. Uh, Matt Draper YouTube channel is fantastic. This is intended to be a return to form for Godzilla. Like it's a retelling of the original Godzilla story from a modern perspective. But what did you guys think of this? I mean, so first of all, I have to thank you for getting me out into a theater uh, for this because I haven't really seen that many movies in the theater this year. What with the baby and all the podcasting and the crazy schedules, but I'll make it out for a special occasion. This was a special occasion and man, this was definitely the one to you know break that that celibate state of not going to a theater for <laughs> i got to see it by myself on a very very big screen not an imax screen but a very big screen for what we have here in salt lake city and it was just a perfect viewing experience i didn't have any douchebaggery in the audience i didn't have anyone bitching that it was a subtitled movie it was just it was just perfection however I did have to deal with the theater next door being full of loud, crazy, bonkers assholes watching the Beyonce movie. So Mm. Godzilla's a loud movie. Beyonce almost overpowered it next door. And I could hear all the (laughs) hooting and hollering and, you know, formation. Like it was (laughs) it it was a little bit of a hindrance for me. But at the end of the day, like it it was still the perfect theatrical experience. Yeah, Alex and I saw it for uh an early IMAX screening and uh, we don't have an authentic IMAX theater in our town. We only have uh, one of those like makeshift ones where the screen is bigger. Uh, The sound is pretty much what it is in any other theater, I believe. Um, But it was still just an experience. Um, The last time I think I saw an IMAX movie, I took my nephews in 2014 to go see Godzilla 
the hmm. US remake with Gareth Edwards uh, in IMAX 3D. So I, I was kind of I was pulled in by the the coincidence of that as well. But um, this one is, again, just so much better. But Alex, get into your initial thoughts. My initial thoughts are AMC. Thank you for only airing 10 minutes of trailers instead of your normal 25 <laughs> and cutting down the damn Nicole Kidman promo, your 100th anniversary promo to like 45 seconds versus three minutes. And then just going right into the movie, it felt like a return to form of the 90s where you had a few trailers. You got right into it. You settled in and you started watching the movie. That sucker punched the shit out of me because I did not see, expect, comprehend what we were getting into. Because the movie starts off with a kamikaze pilot abandoning his post because of fear of doing his job. (laughs) (laughs) And then goes wildly, wildly to the left. And there's a mini Godzilla attack. There is survivorship grief. There's destroyed cities. We spend like 30 minutes learning about post-war. Post-war Japan. Orphans. I This movie is, was a trip. I, I kept expecting it. I was like, okay, this is a God's, this is a Japanese Godzilla movie. We have to eventually get to the point where it involves the governments and the bureaucracy and them coming up with some kind of wackadoo thing. And there we go. And there's the boring parts with the humans sitting around conference tables and all this. Stuff, and it never went there. It stayed grounded on this, this low. Koichi. Yeah. Level, not threat, but this man koichi and just the guilt that he was left that he is alive and it never really strayed from that 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 actor i there were moments where i was like this person can't act to save his life what (laughs) why are we watching this person did the director not go dude can we do like two more takes all right tracting like a human and then suddenly the shift and he's an amazing actor (laughs) and i think it's all intentional I think so much of this movie is deliberately intentional to make a statement that is unexpected. I, I love this damn movie. Going back to just like the very beginning when he's abandoning his mission for his kamikaze flight. So to preface a lot of this, there's like we had four or five trailers, which again somehow was only like 12 minutes of trailers And the first like two or three of them are horror movies or at least thrillers. And as we've all established, I don't do those kind of movies. (laughs) So like I'm I'm already like on the edge because these trailers have I'm like, is this I I leaned over to Alex and I was like, is is this a horror movie? Like, why are there so many horror movie trailers in front of this Godzilla movie? And so I'm on edge and I'm like, oh, God, what am I what have I gotten myself into? And the the moment when we first see the little Godzilla on the was it Odo Island, O D O or O T O, where Koichi lands his plane, saying that there's some kind of faulty mecha- mechanism or something. Um, I was expecting like the classic Godzilla reveal, where like they have the spotlight in the dark and you see the foot or the foot like f- comes into frame from the darkness into the light. No, they just shine the light and Godzilla just roars and runs at the tower with the spotlight and tears it to shreds. And I was like, 
I, I got really tense and like Alex even commented like I, I I saw you getting a little tight there. He's like, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> um, but like the way that Godzilla moved and he he just attacked is like, okay, maybe the trailers were a little off, or like maybe he's gonna grow in the coming time frame that we've got going on here. He seems kind of small, but I, I dig the way he moves and the way he's like so visceral. And then we get to the U.S. test bombings and what happens to Godzilla. But like that first sequence really like set a, an interesting tone because again, like they're just like, no, here's Godzilla. And it, and it just, it worked. Yeah. But uh, I think the part that really made it work for me is that it introduced a lore to Godzilla that we haven't really seen in, I think any of the films where, these are islands that have been occupied by these Japanese, you know, armies and, and military installations that were pretty much, I'm not going to say primitive, but they were definitely not as technological as Tokyo. And the natives of these islands had this legend about a creature named Godzilla. There's a dinosaur like creature that lives very, very deep in the ocean and deep sea fish emerge every time he comes up. So I liked that we were playing with this allure that this is a creature this is a cryptid that already exists. So it it's not created by atomic energy. It's just, you know, some kind of ancient primitive creature that has inhabited these islands. It is the bombings on Bikini Atoll that mutate it into the Godzilla we all know and love. So seeing that kind of lore was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Also, there's something that, uh, if you didn't notice that as well, is we are introduced to how uh, proficient of a pilot Koichi is because he lands on this island that's just full of these little craters and fissures from bombings. And the mechanic that we get introduced to later comments, he's like, wow, you're an amazing pilot. You were able to land on this Swiss cheese of a landing strip. So that comes into play later but it wasn't until the movie was over that I like went back and realized, oh, they were setting up actually how good a pilot Koichi really is and how that comes to play later on in the movie, which even adds more to the frustration that he is essentially a war deserter, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. It, it made sense to me that they were making that connection. But yeah, like you said, it, it didn't really resonate until after they had already set up like, oh, he's going to be the pilot for this big mission at the end of the movie. Right. Before, you know, getting to the second half or whatever, when Godzilla really appears, I was just struck by how the movie was was built to just let things linger in breathe over how devastated japan is i in of course in the original movie the godzilla is a metaphor for the atomic testing and the way the imperial japan has had been knocked down and what do they do they you know can they or can they not defend themselves and rising beyond that but this movie really wanted you to be aware of just how little they had left mm -hmm. how and how the people were have such mixed feelings. Some of them were very happy that, you know, there was government jobs out there that were, that were basically out there to be mine, to basically play minesweeper and start the post-war cleanup. And it pays really well. And he gets a motorcycle and he starts trying to rebuild his, his family's house. 
which he then builds inside the, which is, I think also a metaphor that he builds it, his new house in the ruins of the old house while his neighbor next door is still just like living with her bombed out house, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which the poor woman lost her wife and kids, I mean, not her, her husband and kids. And so it, it tells you, and but then there's some people who are really pissed that the imperial government failed them. But then you have those others who are just like, if who are rising up that even though they're surrounded by this destruction, they're like, Oh yeah, if I would have been there, if we would have just held on and not just given up, we would have won this thing. And it's so interesting that they're playing with, you never are quite sure who is right and who is wrong because there's even some blame, uh, laid upon the allied forces where they're discussing that they can't defend themselves against whatever's coming because they have no, they have no uh, air force anymore. Their air force has been completely decommissioned. So we can't defend against this from the sky and we can't use our battleships because we've been forced to decommission and ship them away. Mm. And we're now just stuck being a pawn because the U.S. can't come and help us because then the Russians will be mad, and the Russian and the Russians won't help us because we're occupied by America. So there's nothing for anyone to do, and you get that yeah. sense of hopelessness when Godzilla is starting to emerge in his full force, and that yeah. it was just staggering. No, it's really interesting too that um, it shows from the perspective of you know who was our enemy back in World War II that there are disputes among generations when it comes to honor and warfare and battle. You know, th- this woman, the neighbor who lost her her family, she's more devastated by the fact that he was a war deserter than she is that her full family was killed. Like, oh, yeah. she attacks him over that, over, like, the, the disrespect of honor and duty. Yet the younger generation really don't f- fall for that. And it's so easy for us because we have that you know going on in our country where you know veterans of different generations think differently about battle and wartime and and duty and honor we don't often think about what you know other forces during these campaigns what their generations thought we just thought they were the enemy so i thought that was a brilliant insight into that as well it gets you to recognize what they're doing with these characters because there's multi-generations of characters there's multi storylines going on that you have an emotional connection with all the way through. And this is one of the things that I, I was talking about with someone else who saw it was this could have been a movie without Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Like this could have been any kind of war film. And I would have been 100% invested in these characters and these stories, regardless if Godzilla was in it or not. That's a very special thing to do as a storyteller, and as a filmmaker where you you didn't have to have the big fire breathing monster to make this yeah. movie work for me. Agreed. The, the fallout for lack of a better word of post world war II Japan just is never something that really is taught at least in my area where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's really ever depicted because we're always more focused on the German front in Europe when we see these war epics. And so to see from the Japanese perspective, what it was like to come home to a decimated Japan post-World War II. You've been demilitarized. You like all honor has essentially been stripped from you. The only honor any of them have is that they were soldiers in the in the war 
And like that is something, but except for Koichi, who was supposed to have been someone who died in battle willingly. Right. And it just the way it, it, it's depicted and it it lingers on so many moments like where um, Sumiko, the the angry neighbor with a heart of gold, when he comes home, he's just like, hey, where are my parents? She's like, they died in the same bombings that killed my kids and like why are you fucking here <laughs> and but then like immediately when uh noriko shows up with um akiko was that the akiko. daughter's name little akiko yeah which like oh my gosh that that little child i don't even know i don't know if they dubbed her or anything like that but like uh as a parent my heart was shattering with same that little girl <laughs> same but the uh, uh sumiko as the neighbor like the minute that that baby is seen, like you're not sure if she's going to like, <laughs> she's going to hand the rocks, the cradle, that kid, or if she's <laughs> going to become anti Sumiko, but something is going to happen. And thankfully it's, it's the better half because again, it, it's just, it's such a beautiful movie, which again is so weird to say about a Godzilla movie where it shows the community coming together because the government is inept for whatever reason it may be, even in this case being a demilitarized post-World War II Japan. Yeah. To go back to Noriko, she is a survivor. She lost her family. And little Akiko has been given to her because her parents died. Mm -hmm. So she is tasked with raising this child that's not hers, and she's turned to kind of a life of thievery. And Kochi kind of half helps her escape, when she's being chased because she like thrusts the child in his arms and it takes off and then just kind of like moves in and he has no up nothing. He's just like, well, you're here and you're asleep. So whatever. And they just kind of find this rhythm of life. And it is pointed out a few times that people are like, this is odd. They're not your family. Why are you together? Right. Which is then the longer they're together, everyone kind of turns on them. And with the feeling of, why aren't you marrying her? You guys are together. <laughs> As it's time passes and they start, you know, building a house together and he, people are telling him, Hey, you know, she's living here, cooking your food and we're all and being the entertainer. Why aren't you marrying her kind of thing? She has one of my favorite lines of the movie because the, the movie's so focused on Kochi and his demons that she is given a little, not a lot to do. But she finds a job in a different city and she and he shows up because he goes out to handle the, the sea mines and she has this beautiful dress and she's got a and she's got a uh, she's got a job and she's like, how do I look? I'm going to go work in the city and it's being rebuilt and la di da di da. And he's like, what? Well, don't I give you enough money? Why aren't you just staying here? This is all very, very sudden. Why are you going out at a job? Why are you give? Uh, why are you having Akiko um, being taken care of by the neighbors? And she says, it's sudden for you. It's been a long time for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, she's home all the time with this kid who, yes, she loves her own child. And she may, in fact, love him. But he's gone a lot. And she's left to live in this ruined city to handle the things, to you know, be the good housewife kind of thing. So, And it's been, I think, what, 18 months, 19 months at that point. So, yeah it's been a long time. And that also points out that he is stuck in this rhythm of, I am not good enough, but I'm going to do this stuff. 
I'm just going to do this job. I'm going to earn some money. I'm going to take care of you. And then he brutally kicks me in the chest when little Akiko calls him daddy and he tells her, I told you not to call me that. It's like, yeah. what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> now, even his buddies are like, Which dude, you can't say that to a child. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love that he's surrounded himself with like non-traditional people because yeah, his grouchy boat captain, the doctor and the kid, they all are just like, what the hell, man? Like they live in your house. You've been with this kid longer than she was with her birth parents are probably possibly. And like, why not just say, yeah, I'm your dad. And it's, it's part of the beauty of this movie where it's his arc to find out how he can be worthy of being her parent. It's not that he doesn't want to be It's that He feels he can't be. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, it's a beautiful moment that again, why is a Godzilla movie making me feel these things? <laughs> I know. Like we've just spoken for 20 minutes about these characters and we haven't even really mentioned the monster yet, <laughs> but that's, that's the beauty of this movie, man. Like, so it's interesting too, because I, I said it when I was doing my Godzilla 98 episode, that my biggest complaint about Godzilla 2014, the American version is that it was trying way too hard for us to be interested in the family drama and dynamics of that movie. Now oh, with yeah. uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson doing his, his shit and leaving the girlfriend and the daughter behind and Brian Cranston dying, you know, all these different things. And we got like 14 minutes of, of Kaiju and yeah. the rest of the movie was us dealing with these family dynamics. But here is a movie that proved that that can work. If you have, the right story if you've got the right characters and the right actors but also this might sound a little i don't know uh off uh, off base i care about these people because these people are practically on the edge of starvation Mm -hmm. and death and dying because of a war that they lost and a city decimated I don't care about 2014 characters because they're mostly white entitled <laughs> army dudes and scientists. It's like, oh, please don't hurt those people. Where these people, I'm like, someone give them a fucking publisher's clearinghouse or something. Like, <laughs> help them. <laughs> well, I mean, they felt like they got it when Koichi was able to mind sweep. Like that's and, and that's again another kick in the nuts because it's like he has a good paying job, but he could die in twenty minutes if he doesn't do this properly. Yeah, right. And and the job as a minesweeper is on a little wooden boat that has like what is it, <laughs> a twelve millimeter gun or whatever on it. And yeah, he's good at it. They have they find this lovely rhythm to their uh, to the life of what they do, and then you find out. The little Godzilla, even though he's like 30 feet tall to begin the movie, gets super transformed by an atomic test. And they know that it's apparently the path is starting to head towards Tokyo. So he's sent out there. They find this wreck of a, is it an American ship that's wrecked? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah. This wrecked American ship. And they all kind of talk about it. And it turns out that the nerdy guy on the boat is really deep in the government. and he, And he says... Yeah, okay, this is kind of what we expected. We're here to s- delay this thing, which is when you find out about the politics I had mentioned earlier, the whole, like, the U.S. The US can't really help because of Russia interference and all that stuff. And so they're in this dinky wooden little boat. 
and their objective that they take solemnly is to delay Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) So the big cruiser can get there. (laughs) Yeah, so the big cruiser, which hasn't fully been decommissioned, can get there. And I will say, for a movie that costs $15 million... Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) That sequence of that attack in the ocean, which is hard to get water physics right, how to... It's hard to get a placement. It's hard to make something fake look, you know, with something real look, you know, mesh appropriately. Even when you have like a, you know, $300 million movie, like, I mean, the Michael Bay's Transformers for as crappy as they are, they look good. You believe the Transformers many times are actually in the scene. That looked photorealistic half the time. The way that they had the Godzilla's snarling face, the way the the way the water moved around it, the way the ship bounced and shifted and they're firing upon it and you're getting actual reaction and like eye twitching and stuff. That scene is just perfect. Yeah. It was an amazing scene and it's $15 million. I I mean, okay. I, I love the fact that it's $15 million. I have zero knowledge of what working conditions and standards are or like, union and work regulations i'm assuming they're not good yeah i'm assuming they're not good so before i go praising the fact this was only 15 million dollars i will say that it does show how bloated american budgets are when we know that union actors and union writers aren't getting paid well yet our movies are costing 300 million up to a billion dollars it's very interesting when we start doing that math yeah so i will say yes there is an issue with exploitation and before we you know dog on japan for what the (laughs) unions they may or may not have that's a problem in america too Mm -hmm. least we forget that what is it life of pi won for best visual effects to a studio that went under because they were overworked and underpaid (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but i will say briefly looking it up part of the reason they look so good is they had they were they started working on their visual effects two years before the movie came out. <laughs> Almost like they knew what they were filming. Like that's, yeah. that's an asinine <laughs> idea in, in modern U.S. blockbuster creation. I think that's just an Asian thing because Korea does the same thing. Like Snowpiercer and The Host were both like almost nearly complete special effects before they even started shooting practical. So I, I think that's just how they do it over there. I think they're more efficient filmmakers over there than we are over here. Yeah. Well, we used to do stuff like that. Like we, we used to do a lot of pre-production work where we knew what a lot of the visual stuff was going to look like. And now it's all just done to coincide with actual filming and post-production. Like they, uh, I remember uh, the, the frozen documentary, frozen two documentary they have on Disney plus they finished the film literally like two weeks before it came out into theaters. And as an animated feature, I would think you'd want a little bit more buffer time before releasing it that early. Cause like, I think within the same week they finished, they had to have it ready for the premiere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for avatar two, three and half of four, that was already filmed back in 2019. And James Cameron's like, yeah, I have a long two years of post-production ahead of me to get to meet December 2025 with Avatar 3. But I remember reading one of the actors of Avatar 2 was actually surprised the movie was coming out last December 
because they said like, oh, I recorded that so filmed that so long ago. I thought it came and went and bombed. They're so <laughs> used to, oh yeah, I do an yeah. FX heavy movie and it's out like three weeks. Where's my residuals? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this this movie looks fantastic. And now that we're on Godzilla, um, I mean, there there are some things that I'm curious if it if these were like intentional ways of representing Godzilla because like once he's gigantic other than when he's in the water his movement is really stiff and like the, even the steps just feel really like robotic and like very not very much not like what we saw with that first interaction on the beach on Odo Island once he is enormous and atoma uh, nuclearized whatever he the movement isn't as visceral it's it's much more like maybe that's where they save some money in the animation i don't know but like there are moments where he when he's like terrorizing the city that the movement is fluid again and he's like just moving around taking out buildings and it it looks great in those moments but there are the shots where he's just kind of like i'm gonna beeline it for where for tokyo but it's mm-hmm. just these quick little robotic steps that feel almost like uh like a 1980s wind-up toy with like you've got the two little spokes in between and they're just taking quick little steps uh, I, yeah i know exactly what you're talking about my opinion is that was intentional my my opinion is that it was supposed to look almost like it was emulating the classic toho man in a costume dynamic like and from my recollection a lot of those shots were either you said over the shoulder shots or reflection shots, especially like there are moments where there are reflections of him moving in the windows of the train car mm. that she's riding in. And that's oh, yeah. where I really noticed it. And so that's why I was like, okay, well maybe this is more of an intentional thing to kind of pay uh, homage to the classic Toho movies of the fifties. Yeah, I, I was, I was kind of leaning in that same direction too. Sorry, Alex. It took me out of the, the immersion of the movie because the movement was kind of so inconsistent, but uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. I, I, I think it is an intentional reference, like the stiff rubber suits that they had in like the fifties before it really became king of all monsters stuff in the sixties, where it was just monster fest of put two guys in suits and let them throw each other around sets. But there was something I, part of me thinks it works because it's very unnatural. They're showing, people's reactions trying to run and it's this very slow belabored footsteps that is crushing the uh, crushing things and that he doesn't even bother moving out of the way of buildings or walking down streets he just kind of trudges through because he's making that beeline to where it is that he disappears to and other times there is this kind of a little bit of agility to it Mm -hmm. but it only really seems to work when he's in the water now I will say that that first city that he attacks where unfortunately it looks we are led to believe that Noriko perished in the atomic blast. Those reporters were fucking hysterical. <laughs> yeah, they were great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking at them going like, cause they do, they, they do that forties, fifties announcer thing of there he is coming down the street and he sees, Oh, the carnage as this building mm-hmm. is being rocked. And they do that voice as he's like a half a block away Oh, he's turning around and coming this way. Oh, and then he clips the building and they all pull it to their chest. <laughs> and I think one of them says, like, live on you know, like, Tokyo City One or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so like, I'm in the wrong movie suddenly. 
But I really want to follow the logic of those it, two guys. Like, dude, the like city's being attacked. Hindenburg homage a little bit. Where the, yeah, like, oh, the humanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and, and this is where I, I think uh, Japanese filmmaking is, is great when it comes to this, because they do it in animes, too, where you can have a suspension of disbelief. They have no qualms about pulling out of the reality or the mood of a movie mm-hmm. to have something Korean cinema does it too. Like there's these little wink and nod moments. And I feel that that gets lost in translation in American cinema. Like I think we're expecting, we're expecting to have a consistent tone in our cinema. Yet I've seen lots of Asian cinema that like, they will give you the wink and the nod because they've just got a different set of rules and standards there. And I thought it was great. If you're yeah. going to make a period movie, then put a period moment like that in it to, you know, remind you that you are being entertained. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. See, that's where Kochi a few times kind of got me is, are you a good actor or a bad actor? Because there's what twice he prostrates himself saying like, please and begging. And he like literally slams his head on a desk while asking that government official to send these letters out looking for. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Tachibana the serviceman from Odo who was the only survivor of that Godzilla attack. And then another time he's like really drunk and like smashes his head to the table. Like give me two weeks to find this man. And I'm like, is this supposed to be funny? Cause that was funny. Yeah. But it's so unlike anything else. And then when t- uh, Tachibana does show up, he beats the shit out of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much. So the next morning when, uh, when uh, Tachibana shows up to work on the secret super plane that they, he has like a huge swollen eye. He's like, he <laughs> looks like he's slept in the gutter all night as part of his penance kind of thing. He's like, Oh, you're here. I'm like, Oh yeah. He really did be the crap out of you, man. This is like a weird <laughs> turn, <laughs> but it works. That's the thing about it is that it works. Everything in this movie works so well. Yeah. Everything. hundred percent. It, it's it, it, when they they try to do comedic moments, it's not too far out there that it's withdrawing from the movie when they they're being more serious and like the the moment you're talking about, like yeah, it was it was funny, but it was also just meant to convey his desperation for trying to find Tachibana. And uh, I think the other time he does it is he's trying to beg. It was Noriko had been yeah Noriko had been uh, lost in the atomic blast at that point. But he he's trying to just convey his desperation. I thought it was is done so well. But like you said, mm-hmm. there are moments where even in that moment where he he's portraying desperation, you're like, are you overdoing it? Mm-hmm. But it works at the same time. Yeah. So really quickly before we move on from Ginza and all that into like the final confrontation, I still have not seen Oppenheimer. I don't know if I ever will. Uh, it just is too long of a, a time investment. I, I don't know if I'm going to want to watch it in like five, six, seven years when my kids are old enough for me to be like, dad needs like three hours to himself to watch a movie. <laughs> but the atomic blast that we get from Godzilla in this movie compared to the one we get in Oppenheimer, which one was better in your opinion? Yeah. In a cinematic moment, like which one hit you harder in terms of what the movie was trying to convey with it? Oh, I mean, the Oppenheimer is supposed to you know portray a sense of realism it's it's not a monster movie i just like a lot of godzilla movies or kaiju movies you kind of suspend yourself from the idea that 
people are dying en masse, you know, because it's just part of the game. It's a kaiju movie. People are going to die. So you expect it. And they don't really show, you know, skin flying off bone and, you know, gore and viscera like that. It is more of like the sense of destruction and it's coming from a mythological creature. So it was an impressive special effect. But for me, it was par for the course of uh, a movie like this where Oppenheimer, since there is that sense of realism attached to what really was going on, uh, I would say that's the one that's a lot more triggering for me. But while you're on the subject of Oppenheimer, I think that the most comparable parts to Oppenheimer of this film is the whole, let's break this thing down scientifically of how we can defeat this thing with very little. Yeah. That, like, that bringing science together and bringing technology together rapidly that to me felt more like what Oppenheimer was doing in his three hours. Uh, <laughs> to me, that was more comparable than the atomic blast in my opinion. See, I, I will take a bit of a contrarian position to what you said, Antonio, because in Oppenheimer, I had just finished watching some documentaries about it and listening to some stuff about the uh, Manhattan project. And I was actually kind of disappointed once the explosion happened because while it looked great, you know, from the footage and stuff I've seen, it didn't actually have all the nuance that some people watched it without goggles on. And they say that there was like golds and greens and, and purples in there that they didn't expect. And mm -hmm. it just kind of did it as a prototypical red and yellow bomb explosion. So I was kind of mm -hmm. like, mm. but I will say that the first time Godzilla unleashes in that city where uh, Noriko is and Kochi is there because he had, you know, because he did not expect Godzilla to hit that city and he goes to, like save her and he finds her of course of course he finds her in the city of hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> yeah. being, being in the it's middle of the attack you one of the many gut her. punches this movie gives you yeah and then Godzilla does the the blast like he gets shot up by a few tanks gets pissed off and does the blast i really in my mind went okay he's going to push her to safety He's going to get blown away, maybe a little bit of rubble, maybe a bit injured. He's going to be fine. That's what these movies do. Instead, she shoves him out of the way as everyone else on that block is just gone. Yep. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Sh shit. <laughs> well, this, I, yeah. Same. And that's that's part of where I'm asking this question is because... I have never seen a Godzilla atomic blast be conveyed that way before. It's always just been like, oh, it's his fire breath is what it has always been. It's just blue. But in this case, it is more of like a beam that eventually explodes into an atomic blast mm -hmm. similar to an atomic bomb. And it just decimates everything. Destroys. Sorry, Alex. I know you hate the term decimate. <laughs> it destroys the the city and you see people get blown away and like you see the initial like outward explosion and then you see it like suck everything back in because of the pressure that's created from the explosion which i thought was a, a brilliant touch yeah um I, I i i have read it that other godzillas have conveyed this sort of atomic breath before but again for me i haven't seen that before because i haven't gone into all 50 some godzilla movies there have been but the emotion that again this movie pulled for me in that moment i was just like jesus can these people catch a fucking break please <laughs> yeah. 
it raises the stakes, baby. That's the whole point. Like, yeah. you got to have that just utter disaster and catastrophe to start bringing people together. And, you know, that's where, as we read in, lead into Act 3, it kind of calls back to another Christopher Nolan movie. It's like the Japanese Dunkirk to defeat... <laughs> Godzilla. And I was fine with it. I'm like, let's go. I like this. Show me what you got. Let's yeah. bring in uh what's this guy? Well, Kenji no- Kenji Noda. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I really found it blissfully cheesy the the resolution. Well, the the plan is to put it bluntly. The plan is let's give Godzilla the bends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, the first thing is we're going to we're going to sink him. And if that doesn't work, even though they have repeatedly said he comes from the deep sea, because whenever he shows up, deep sea fish bubble to the top. It's given the bend. Well, I feel like it's implied that, you know, he probably comes up at a gradually. At a, yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't just like pop up like a the dragon sword or something for the Power <laughs> Rangers. Well, that's what the that's what the deep sea fish represent is the dragon sword. Yes, it's hundred <laughs> percent. No, they represent the fact that they are pushed to the surface too fast, and that's why they show up dead on the surface. Like yeah. the the oh. pressure of him gradually raising. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good point. So makes sense. Is, yeah. So retired. Well, not re, I guess retired naval officers decide to take some decommissioned ships that weren't fully decommissioned. They were on their way to be to lure him to sink him. And then bends him. Mm -hmm. And he's just too powerful. They can't, like, they can't. He decides that I'm going to hang out at 800 meters. You ain't going to drag me up. And then all the tugboats show up. And my, the rational part of my head was, this is, this is so stupid. You're getting like 50 little tugboats, which yes, tugboats are actually incredibly (laughs) powerful. They have a huge amount of torque. They move ships all day long. That is their damn job. Tugboats are actually that powerful. It's incredible to watch them work. But I'm like, of course, the civilians are coming to save the day. Yes, great. (laughs) And it works. It's so because and part of the reason why it works is they are building up and building up and building up that Kochi is the single pilot is in the single plane left in all of Japan. This experimental plane that doesn't have an ejector seat that has been loaded with bombs. And and he has because, you know, Noroku's dead. Uh, he's given Akio to his, his neighbor along with all the money he's earned with a note that's like, you know, take care of her as if she is her own kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and everyone's just like, no, please don't, please don't, please don't. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, is he going to bail out again? Is he not going to bail out again? Is he going to, is he going to fail? What is he going to do? And I did actually, even though rationally I know this has to have some kind of a happy ending, I really thought they were going to go for the damn sucker punch ending of like, no. He should have sacrificed himself in the war, and now he will now. Mm-hmm. And then that's the grossest little pop off of the head of Godzilla, Dan. Slams <laughs> <laughs> no, a plane it. right in there, and he just it just still frames on it for like three or four seconds of like, "There's a plane in my mouth. This is new." <laughs> <Pop>. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought they they foreshadowed that resolution pretty heavily because yeah. you had the doctor talking about how we didn't even have planes with ejector seats and i'm like okay so tachibana is either going to install an ejector seat because he's had a year however many months to get over his grief of what happened on odo island and realize that like 
anything that uh, Koichi did was not going to resolve the giant monster terrorizing that beach or he's going to like fix the ejector seat in the plane. Um, But either way, they're going to be like ejector seat. And um, especially once Koichi, once he's in the plane and he's talking to Tachibana and his hand shaking, he's like, huh, part of me wants to live. I'm like, okay, yeah, he's he's ejecting. It's just a matter of when and where and how close to the mouth is he going to get? And they, yeah. I, to their credit, they went to the last inch. And it, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, time to go. Time to go, man. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, heart, my heart was pounding, even though I, I had a pretty good idea of where it was going. Yeah. Yeah, or- they, let it, they, 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 they gave enough hope and let us see enough of it. They didn't pull like the Houdini switcheroo that uh, Dark Knight, rises <laughs> did yeah yeah that was that was I, I, I hated that it was making me think of that too I'm like, oh, it's the yeah, that's, pilot, but that's where my mind went <laughs> yeah. yeah thanks I, nolan <laughs> i was just gonna say that <laughs> so the movie does end on a help on a hopeful note which i appreciate the only thing i didn't like about the ending it turns out that of course, on the day he's going to sacrifice himself and he gives away the child, which that little child, I, I have no, I, I, she actually must be like 18 months or something because the voice sounds about right. The like, the like, the mannerisms, everything, just her asking, like, is daddy coming back? I'm like, stop. Stop it. Yeah. Listen, you already <laughs> lost mom. And please don't do this. She drew a picture of the three of them as well. And she, yeah. Koichi's like, is that me? He's like, oh no, that's mommy. Oh, so, and then you see like it's a picture of the three of them. And my heart is just breaking. I'm like, I need to go home and hug my kids. I don't know if they're <laughs> awake, but like they're gonna get hugs. Yeah. Yep. It but, got us. It got us dads right in the gut. <laughs> yeah. It turns out Noriko has actually been found alive. Cause there's a telegram that shows up that day and it ends with like him carrying the little girl into the hospital. The only thing I didn't like about that is she's obviously been out of it for, cause it's been several weeks and she has some kind of radiation burn sickness or something like that is they did the Ray uh, from neon Genesis Evangelion kind of like head wrap motif of like, cause Ray Josh, you've never seen Neon Genesis. Have you? I haven't seen that Evangelion. Yeah. No. Okay. There's a, the character of Ray gets beat up a lot in it because she is a good pilot, but she's also uh, it's kind of a sacrificial lamb. And half the time after a battle, she ends up with that same, like one bandage across the eye, the head wrapped in an arm. <laughs> it's every single time. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh look, she's alive. And the stereotypical <laughs> battle of wounds. <laughs> well, for me, I like, I wanted like 10 more minutes after seeing her come back. Like I know narratively the movie is done. It, it doesn't need to go 10 more minutes, but I'm like, did she lose the eye? Did like how badly is she hurt? Because I love her and I need her to survive for her kid and her family. Yes, and she needs to wear the little green dress that's adorable because she's a secretary. Yeah. <laughs> and she's so proud of that dress. As well she should be. She's a working exactly. woman in 1940s Japan. Good for you. Exactly. But this movie's not woke. That's why it did so well. <laughs> but yeah. I love the damn movie, man. It's it oh yeah, works the time on every level. scale. It's a must see. This is Definitely. by far my favorite movie I've seen this year. I mean, new movie, absolutely too. And like I said, I've I've seen a lot of twenty twenty three movies at home, not in the theater, but out of all of them, yeah, this was my favorite uh, view of the year for sure. Number one. 
yeah, I gotta say, it's definitely my pick for the year thus far. I mean, maybe you'll that'll change when I finish watching uh, Exorcist Believer tomorrow. But oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so Antonio, I don't know how deep into um, the Oscar bait you go, but Alex, I'm curious what you think the Oscar chances of this even getting like a nomination in the Best Picture category, not just like Best Foreign Language Film, but like Best Picture, the the top ten movies of the year per the Academy. <sighs> They'll nominate it for Best Foreign because it's. Got a critical claim to really well in Japan and is also doing well worldwide. I do not see them actually. I just can't see the Academy actually going. Yes, a Godzilla film is one of the best pictures of the year. <laughs> but with as many, we've delays been surprised we before. Parasite. District Nine yeah. was nominated for a best picture. So yeah. everything, everywhere, all at once was a pretty big surprise. I mean, that was yeah. a big fan favorite, but I don't, I don't see that as a movie the Academy really would have been like. Yeah, th- this was a March release. Let's let's remember this one. Yeah, I, I hope that they actually. I hope that it's a mix of one. This movie did well over the weekend, has enough critical claim, and has enough meaning and depth within it that the academy can go yeah this should be dominated because it, it damn well should and i don't know maybe it may not like the the things that josh talked about and you too alex about the special effects whether or not people are going to find them intentional or you know maybe just budgetary who knows where it's going to land special effects wise but i thought that the score and the sound design in this mm-hmm. movie were mm-hmm. flawless like oh, especially yeah. in the boat scenes, the aquatic scenes, and the chase scenes, the sound design was so good. I was like, oh my god! Like I haven't been this shaken by sound effects in a film in a long time. Yeah, when um, Noriko's on the train going into Ginza, and they kick in the Godzilla theme for the one time in the movie for that yeah. first appearance of gigantic kaiju Godzilla, like it it hit perfectly because the Godzilla theme has become a little bit more of like a, a misnomer for lack of a better word, where it's just like, yeah, it's synonymous with Godzilla. Godzilla is this big, funny guy that plays basketball with Charles Barkley in the city. <laughs> but like <laughs> now in this moment, like you hear that, dun, 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 dun. you hear it and you're just like, Oh fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's going to happen and it, it it takes on an ominous tone and it yeah. just works so wonderfully what do you guys think about sequels i mean they left two little ambiguous moments in the film the one is uh at the end after they find her alive noriko's got the little patterns of godzilla's spines mm-hmm. show up on her neck like some kind of radiation poisoning or something. And I don't think she's going to turn into a creature, but I think it's just a nice little nod that there's more to the story. And then, of course, the the ultimate spoiler, we all have seen Godzilla have regenerative capabilities throughout the movie, and chunks of Godzilla start to bubble up and regenerate before it cuts to the credits. So whether that's sequel bait or if it's just like an ambiguous nod to like, a continuation of just a creature. I mean, who knows? I was actually thinking about this after I walked out. It's like, okay, well, what if they're going to do to us what prey might do to us? You know, they're going to take now this into a different direction than the Godzilla franchise has before, you know? So we have these new characters. We have this new timeline. It's, you know, 
minus one, <laughs> we we might be in for something cool that you know it can really have an open canvas of what it wants to be now. I think that if they do a direct sequel to this one, because it's been a while since the Toho series has done that, I want them to keep the same writer director because this this director whose name I should have really looked up because. They when it popped up and it said written by, directed by, visual effects by uh, Takeshi Yamazaki, uh-huh. it has to be them. They had a vision. Uh, from what I remember reading, uh, they were given the approval to do the script back in like 2018. Spent three years on it. Then the pre-production, then the pre, you know the filming and the visual effects for two years let them do whatever it is they want to do. If they want to jump ahead to modern day, they want to do a, a direct sequel to this. Fantastic. Um, what I did find interesting is that um, they were asked about like what mo- one movie would they want to film? And he said, I would like to take a pass at a star Wars film. And I'm like, please. Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm down for that. I mean, Gareth Edwards did a pretty great job in my opinion with what he, he got to do with rogue one. I know Tony Gilroy mm-hmm. came in and redid a lot of Rogue One, but one of the things and one of the staples Gareth Edwards has is his ability to convey scale. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what better way to convey scale than with a Godzilla movie? Yep. Uh, but I, I would be okay with a sequel. I kind of, I'm of two minds. I would love to see the story continue for this, uh, for Koichi and his family. I want to see like what happens with them, but I don't know where you go narratively with it because in this film, at least, it feels like Godzilla is kind of uh, an allegory more for like PTSD than mm-hmm. it is nuclear disarmament and are like the the ravages of nuclear war, because a big theme that keeps coming up is Noriko keeps asking him, like, is your war done? Are you do- are you have you worked through your your problems? Right. And in this one i feel like he has his full arc so what do you do in a sequel with someone who's already done a full arc i don't know uh but like i would love to see like the doctor come back and like maybe the kid like you could make a movie about them where they they do their own thing because now like maybe the u.s and russia have made an agreement where they can create like an anti-godzilla task force or something (laughs) just in case there are other giant monsters out there and there but will be. I, I know the, the director did say that he he did the whole Noriko uh, radiation poisoning and the uh, the Godzilla regenerating thing uh, as as bookends to the story. Like it's just meant to be more like whether or not we do a sequel, the world continues and you can kind of fill in the gaps as you want. Yeah. yeah. But if, if he does get a chance to do a sequel, which I think he very much will. I I would definitely love to see something go into uh, 1950s or 1960s Japan, like post disarmament where they're allowed to have their own military again. And I think that could be a a really fun place to go because in this world now where at least one Kaiju exists, Titan, whatever you want to call them, it's a ripe playground to, to do whatever you want to do with. I, I would like to see them try to continue to make Godzilla more of the villain instead of moving him into like the anti-hero protector realm. So like, I don't know what that would mean for if you want to go bigger and bring in a new monster, but I think you need to stick with Godzilla being the villain in some fashion. Yeah. I like that. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
bring in Mothra, bring in Godira, whatever it is you need to do if you want to do another one of these. You know, bring yeah, in Kurt I Russell mean, and Monarch, whatever it is you got. Because <laughs> that's that's the question that comes out of all of this is where do you go to keep it interesting? Like, yeah, people there there are a lot of negative reviews out there because there's not enough monster fighting and there's not enough destruction. But those people are kind of missing the point of the movie, especially with it being a Japanese movie, because Godzilla has always been a, an allegory, or at least initially it was an allegory for atomic weaponry and what it, it did to Japan. Yeah. No, you so, know what? They they can eat me. I want to see them go like a hundred <laughs> years prior to this. I want to see Godzilla, <laughs> small Godzilla that we see at the beginning versus uh, Tom Cruise in the last samurai, like feudal Japan. I want them <laughs> to keep going backwards with this thing and do something that they've never done before. That would make me excited to go see something like this. I mean, that's the thing is like, Okay, if we're already playing jazz with Godzilla and the mythology behind him, like you said, being a metaphor for atomic energy, well, let's change that narrative and make it, you know, something different. You know, let's say that as we are seeing the the British colonize more and more of these islands in the Asian Pacific, Godzilla's like, oh, fuck no, <laughs> and then starts taking those guys out. Like, I want to see this. I am very excited because I do like the idea of doing a, a kind of like a prey thing where it's Godzilla versus the samurai. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, make it, make it 20, 30 foot Godzilla. And that, that, that would be a lot of fun. That would be fantastic. Right? I'm telling you, like everyone you, wants to make things bigger, make it smaller and faster and take technology away. <laughs> well, that's yeah, the I'm thing not, that, uh, yeah. Uh, Joss Whedon had said when he was doing Avengers Age of Ultron is he was like, oh, what do you do when you make the biggest movie in the world and make it interesting? You have to make it more personal. He didn't do that. But <laughs> I, that, I think that is a, I think that is a really good lesson that like, yeah, OK, we made this big blockbuster. How do you make an interesting sequel is you make it a smaller scale and make it more personal. Yeah. And I, I yeah, like I that idea. But again, I don't think he did that with Age of Ultron. But with, uh, you know, good filmmakers and people who like the craft and artistry of filmmaking, especially with something like this, why is a Godzilla movie making me feel feels yeah. <laughs> instead of just like shoving popcorn in my face? being like, yes, destroy that building, man. So this is really the last thing I have to say on it is it was beautifully cheesy once uh once uh, Ke- uh kochi got into the airplane because those shots of like kind of like looking for godzilla and he just kind of like th- the lazy kind of like banking shots back and forth and kind of like gazing out the window it is so perfectly the 40s and 50s propaganda like american mm-hmm. propaganda films that's exactly how we've done it it's like oh yeah i'm looking for the enemy you hear you know, you get the roar of the engine you got the goggles on and it's like you know like we're gonna go shoot the red baron down or something but the music is so also hopeful and triumphant in those moments where you're like yeah you got this <laughs> you gotta you gotta lure him back out to sea. You gotta keep kiting. You gotta keep kiting that kaiju. You gotta get into the spot. It, 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 give yeah. him the bends. Exactly. And then give <laughs> him the bends. Sink him, <laughs> and then pull him back up. 
with tugboats. Yeah, that's all I really have is this is a fantastic movie, not just like a fantastic Godzilla movie. Um, I would recommend anyone go see it. I, I, the only thing I will say that I have regrets about this movie is that, yes, it is subtitled, which means if and when Slade hears this episode, he's going to be like, Josh, you have no more fucking excuses to watch any other anime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not going to do it, Slade. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with that, I think it's time to wrap up here. Uh, Antonio, thanks so much for being with us and talking this fantastic movie. Let everyone know again who you are, what your podcasts are, and where they can find them. Yes, the Cult-Worthy Cinema Podcast, the Cult-Worthy Classic, the Milf and Me, and the soon-to-be-released Back to the Balcony. You'll be able to find them all on thecultworthy.com, which links you everywhere that I'm on the internet, essentially. <laughs> Alex, where can people talk with us on an open platform? I think there's this place called Discord where if they click the link below this message, they can go to it and join and hear all our rantings and ravings in our like 45 different you know sub-Discord rooms. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a lot. <laughs> um, but I think it does keep conversation a little cleaner. <laughs> uh, but you can follow us on social media at Talking Smack Pod everywhere. Uh, Blue Sky, Instagram, Threads, Hive Social, Post News, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Lonnie's website. You can email us your thoughts, questions, reviews at tsmackpod at gmail.com. Uh, email us at tsmackpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Leo Allen for our musical themes, which Alex will be editing in over this. And uh, <laughs> Beppo for our original avatars, Virtual Ale Studios for our Ricky avatar. Please like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. And most importantly, thanks everyone so much for listening. Antonio, thank you again for being here. Alex, as always, thanks for being here as well. I know it's a late night for both of us and we have work in the morning. So <laughs> let's say it. Let's get out of here. And everyone, watch Star Trek. Who loves T Smack? I love T Smack. Is it true? Mm hmm. I do, I do. Ew.